Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dwalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 14 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And this one's gonna be a little bit different, gonna be very fast paced and a heck of a lot of fun. I'm gonna be joined by Steve Mizrak and Brian Kaleo, two industry titans in the world of group practices and dentistry. Steve is a partner at Dorfman, Mizrak and Thaler, an accounting firm in New Jersey. And Brian leads the healthcare group at the Dykema Law Group. Y'all know both of their names. They've been in the industry for multiple decades. They are two titans in the world of group practice of dentistry. And we are gonna talk a lot about the M&A markets. What happened in 21, what's happening in 22, outlooks beyond that, and a lot of other good stuff to come. So get your pad and pen ready for another wonderful cup of coffee and join us on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. We're on the air. Once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and I am going to take a back seat in today's episode. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm joined on the microphones by Steve Mizrak. He is a certified public accountant uh, in charge of healthcare services at Dorfman, Mizrak, and Thaler. He's got a broad background in tax and accounting a ton of experience with healthcare, MSOs, DSOs, and every other acronym in between. And in, uh, all of his experience includes structuring transactions, financing and financial analysis, general practice strategies, and a whole lot more. And of course, Brian Kaleo leads the Dykema Law Group's healthcare group. You've seen and heard Brian on stage multiple times. He is a pro's pro when it comes to the legal world and all of what we do. He's got over 25 years experience and he's regarded as one of the foremost authorities in the US on DSO formation, the business structures behind DSOs, DSO related mergers and acquisitions, and a full relay of regulatory compliance requirements for DSOs. In 2019, he was named a DSO influencer by Group Dentistry Now. Steve, Brian, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Do y'all want to say hello to the audience? Well, Perrin, it's always a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to sit down with you and uh, discuss uh, my favorite topic, DSOs in the dental industry. Fantastic. Steve, thank you for, for making a little time for us this afternoon as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Perrin. And, you know, fortunately for myself, I've had, you know, you know, many opportunities to work with both you and Brian. Uh, both your companies are awesome and, you know, always on the front edge of where things are headed. So, you know, again, thanks for you know inviting me to participate as well. I couldn't think of uh, two better guys to to spend the afternoon with uh, talking about the world of M&A. <laughs> I feel like um, M&A has been uh, uh, white hot for probably about 18 months now. 
Um, and we saw a tremendous uh, amount of volume globally, not just in dental, but you know, all across the, the world and in every uh, sector, seemingly so. And in 2021, why don't we start our discussion um, uh, around uh, what we saw in 2021? And maybe, um, Brian, I'll, I'll ask you to, to take the lead on this one. And just let's talk about your overall assessment on things like deal volume activity, um, you know, multiples, trends that you saw, um, you know, kind of let's start the discussion at that point, because M&A uh, for 2021 was, was quite frankly, unbelievable. Well, yeah, you said that, Perrin. I mean, I, I would I would use terms like explosive, you know, the 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 busiest MA market in dentistry that I've seen in 27 years, you know, of doing this. And, you know, people often say, why? You know, what do you think? Well, there was still pent-up demand uh, due to COVID was one factor. Two, there was a desire among many groups after everything they've been through with the lockdowns and the, the great lockdown, the great reopening, the great recovery, that we don't want to do this alone. Uh, you know, ever again. So uh, that pushed some people to affiliate uh, with DSOs. And then, of course, um, there was the threat. I mean, at the beginning of the year, around this time last year, uh, the Biden administration announced that there was going to be a 43 or at least there was their goal was to have a 43.6 percent capital gains tax. Of course, that didn't come true. But when you made, you know, an explosive announcement like that, um, everybody wanted to get their deals done. So between the pent up demand for COVID, between, you know, the idea that a lot of people felt pressure after everything they've been through, plus the threat of a tax, uh, you know, a tax, a massive tax overhaul. Really, everybody wanted their deals closed last year. I've never seen it that busy, particularly the third and fourth quarters were just I mean, just insane. You know, we were talking to, you know, those of us that do M&A transactions, whether it's on your end or on Steve's end or on my end, uh, you were just staying up all night, day after day after day. And I've never seen it be that busy in all the years that I've been doing this. Yeah, Steve, I mean, from your perspective also, I mean, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine uh, the sleepless nights you had <laughs> um, uh, with clients uh, resulting from M&A activity in addition to your normal quarterly cadence, my God. But um, in any perspective that you want to share on on that same sort of trend? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, Brian used the word explosive. I probably would have used the word fever pitch, um, and it was actually a fever um, especially, you know, you know, I was, you know, following what was going on in Washington, you know, every week in terms of, you know, updates as to, you know, gee, what are they going to do? Is it going to happen? Meaning the tax rate increase, um, and you know, and what will it ultimately become? And then, it, as Brian said, you know, at the end of the day, it became much ado about nothing. Although it did create this huge activity level that caused lots of people to do deals. And you're right, you know, from our perspective. We were caught in between. Brian was, you know, dealing with the legal aspects in terms of document preparation and review. And we were trying to churn out numbers for our clients in order to get, you know, their data together so that, you know, they were going through, you know, Q of E analysis and things like that. Um, And, you know, as Brian said, you know, for sure, you know, COVID definitely impacted, you know, you know, this, um, you know, this delay in terms of people, you know, not being able to go to market. And I think the other thing is, you know, the aging population of more and more people um, are becoming retirement age, especially with, you know, you know, require, you know, health being better, luckily, and, um, you know, people working a little later, it kind of expanded the scope of people who were going to market. 
And of course, let, let's not forget the fact that, you know, in terms of as, a, as an asset class, PE firms were performing off the charts. Um, and so you had this limitation, this limited number of deals with lots of people chasing them. So that was forcing things even more. Yeah, really, um, you know, I, another term I've, I've used to describe it was the perfect storm. You know, the um, uh, the confluence of everything y'all talked about, along with um, some potential uh, rate, looming rate increases for the future and um, people being awash a, a with spending cash. I mean, it just it made for um, an unbelievable uh end of the the calendar year that was 2021 you know one other thing too uh that that we saw in in 2021 was there were a couple of major platforms that went through recapitalizations um not to say that that's new in our industry but i, I feel like there was probably a greater number of them potentially last year or maybe just more that i heard about uh personally speaking and then you also had a couple of the the larger groups um going through a merger or an acquisition, depending on how you really want to define it, that being uh, Heartland and ADP. I mean, we, we tend to focus on the smaller groups. Like our tar our target clients are obviously, you know, two to 25 locations, I would say. But when you start seeing that type of uh, activity of the, the consolidation amongst the consolidators, you know, at the top end of the food chain, it's a different look that we don't see that often. Any any commentary from y'all as it relates to to you know the higher end the enterprise level DSOs and some of those. Well, well that uh, that trend is here to stay, Perrin. I mean, that's a very astute observation you just made because we've been talking you and I and Steve and others for for it seems like seven eight years about the great evolution and the great consolidation of dentistry and everybody. You know, everybody understands that on one level to mean, you know, DSOs and private equity groups are out there affiliating, you know, solo and group practices, and they're going to keep doing that. And then they'll roll them up again every three to five years. But, you know, it also means the consolidators consolidate, you know, the bigger uh DSOs doing bigger deals. You know, we had certainly the Aspen uh, dental clear choice deal at the end. We had the smile that was be at the end of, uh, you know, 2020. We had the uh, smile brands Midwest dental deal in the last quarter of 2020. We had the Heartland transaction you just referenced. And, you know, there's a couple more confidentially. We can't talk about it with names that are in the works right now. And I think that trend is going to continue. So in a addition to the regular evolution that we've been talking about where the PE groups and the DSOs are consolidating solo and groups, I think we're going to see a lot more larger deals where a big DSO acquires another big DSO, you know, a platform, and, and you're going to continue to see that consolidation trend happening alongside in parallel with the consolidation of solos and groups, which has been going on for, you know, well over a decade. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting time, and and um, you know, it's it's great to have a ringside seat at all of it uh, when when you see all this happening. And obviously, the ADA had a webinar a couple of weeks ago where where they were talking about the the trends in solo private practice and the the acceleration of uh, group practices relative to that. And I think that for the first time ever, the uh, number of ADA members being involved uh, in solo private practice dipped to 46%. So it was the first time it was ever below 50%. So I think there's that 
that accelerating trend of people exiting uh, on a solo private practice. There's the proliferation of emerging groups that are call it two to five or maybe two to 10, you know, those uh, emerging groups that are what we call doctor founded and debt funded. And then you play it out all the way through the string and you look at stuff at an enterprise level and there's activity at every point. It's just amazing to see. Um, so let's take, um, let's take a turn into 2022. And, you know, I, I think there's a natural uh, uh, point in time where all this M&A activity um, has, to, has to slow up a little bit because the operations teams have to integrate these businesses and make sure that the the you know the the amount that they that the BD teams the business development teams paid for the acquisitions actually that that they start to stick and become cohesive to the core business and inevitably there's some level of of slowdown um, and I think we've seen a little bit of that in in as we get through quarter one of 2022. Um, Steve, do you want to maybe take the the lead on on that piece and? Talk about what you're seeing from your lens uh, sure. in terms of clients you're working with in quarter yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So I, I see a couple of things. To your point about the integration aspect, I mean that's certainly a you know an issue that you know the the a lot of the DSOs or the acquirers, if you will, you know, encounter are encountering now as well as at the end of uh, last year. I mean, it's imagine you're you know you're going to a feast where it's you know. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a buffet where you have the greatest meal you could possibly have, drink all you want, and now you have to kind of sit back and kind of digest the food. Um, you know, one of the critical things I think they're dealing with in terms of unification of, you know, global processes and financial reporting, you know, the recruitment is, you know, is definitely, you know, a concern, right? Like, you know, the, the biggest issue if you talk to, you know, your dental groups are, you know, we can't get enough dentists, there's an issue there. Um, and then we're also finding with a lot of our clients that did acquisitions that, you know, trying to find the right internal people in terms of financial, which is, you know, our world or administration, administrative, it's hard to get the people that can now, you know, manage a much larger enterprise. With that being said, um, you know, a couple of things I also, you know, we're encountering is that there's been a carryover. I mean, Brian's firm and our firm are working together. Um, you know, on some deals that were, you know, you know, formed, you know, last year, when I say formed in terms of a negotiation that have still carried over into 2022. Um, and then you have other people that are continuing to go to market. So, yeah, it's not like the fever pitch or the explosion, you know, that Brian referred to earlier, but it's definitely, you know, still active, just not, you know, insanely active, manageably active. So, you know, you know, that's what we're seeing anyway. Yeah, very manageably active is a, a very appropriate term. Brian, how are uh, how are things looking from your lens as we talk about 2022? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to pick up. I mean, I think manageably active. Thanks, Steve. I hadn't heard that term, but it, it's probably good. It's manageably active. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, so far, you know, this isn't a political show, obviously, but it seems like a fact that the Biden administration's attempt to, you know, increase the taxes sort of stalled out. You know, obviously, again, this is not a political show. We're not going to go into every last reason, but let's just say it's stalled out. It doesn't look like 43.6% on the table. For a while, they were trying to raise the capital gains from 20 to 25%. It doesn't even look like that's on the table right 
right now. And depending how the midterm elections turn out and if the Republicans were to win one or both houses, they've all said they're not going to raise taxes at all on capital gains. So I think all that has the market feeling like this is not like a sprint. You know, I still think there's insatiable demand, by the way, because dentistry has proven to be insatiable demand for solo group and even larger group practices because dentistry has proven to be, uh, you know, recession proof. It's proven to be pandemic proof. We had a brief period of time when they shut the offices, but that's over with now. I think dentistry has been declared essential. Nobody's talking about ever, even if like some of these variants come out and it gets a little crazy. Nobody's talking about closing dental offices anymore. So, you know, you have a recession proof, pandemic proof. You have uh, insatiable demand on the part of buyers. You have very brisk demand on behalf of sellers to sell and a lot of competition, which is driving the prices up. So I think it's going to be really, really busy. I think in the third and fourth quarter, it's going to accelerate. I mean, selfishly, I hope it's not as bad as last year. We didn't get any sleep. I mean, certainly, you know, I like being busy and want to be busy, but I'm not anxious for a repeat of the third or fourth quarter of last year. It was just too much activity. My best estimate right now is, you know, if it's if it's manageably active now, it's going to be a little more than manageably active. It's going to be accelerated in the third and fourth quarter. But I don't think it'll hit the fever pitch that it hit, uh, you know, last year. Yeah, I, I uh, having so many friends in uh, accounting firms and law firms across the uh the U.S. I, I tried to give y'all um, a, a lot of space <laughs> at the end of last year. It, uh, nobody was getting any sleep. It was amazing when I look at time and date stamps on some when some of the emails would come through uh, on client-related work on our end, and I just thought, good gosh, I mean, are these guys ever getting any rest? So um, let's, uh, you know, keeping keeping this apolitical or out of the political spectrum. Um, let's talk a second about outside forces, because I think that the potential tax law changes and, and all that, like you mentioned, um, are one aspect of that. And we can we can dig into, uh, you know, what's on the table now, uh, even carried interest provisions and some things like that that would probably have an impact. Um, but let's also talk about just when we say outside forces, we're we're living through an international crisis. I guess it's a political crisis, but it's a military conflict um, that you know potentially could engulf more of, of Europe. Um, that's a lot of uncertainty around oil and everything else. You've got the cost of capital and, and the, uh, the Fed saying they're gonna raise interest rates multiple times going forward and that type of an impact that it's gonna have on uh, PE funds that that use debt leverage to get deals done. Uh, and then the, the potential tax piece, you know, all of that could amount to a, a whole lot of nothing, uh, or it could be something. Do y'all wanna to maybe take a crack at any of those aspects um, and, and how they could potentially have an impact on our industry? Um, well, like the tax thing I'd like to kind of cover because that's, you know, you know, certainly within our wheelhouse. So what was very interesting about last year in terms of the impending tax law change. The two things that were kind of takeaways for me, the ahas that were important was what number one was that um, they, you know, any transactions that were going to occur after the effective date of um, of the implementation of the law. So if the IRS or you know Treasury announced like 
you know, we passed a law on June 30th, then any transactions that occurred before June 30th would have been grandfathered by the new law. And anything beyond that date, what you know, you didn't have that safe harbor anymore. So meaning that if you closed in July, you were subject to the new tax law changes. The reason for that, which is political, not in terms of a political statement, uh, in terms of taking choice of parties, but political in terms of what what the government was concerned about is that they didn't want to be accused of you know tricking the markets. In other words, if they announced that the effective law change took effect in 2022, by way of example, then there would be a huge rush to be selling securities, and then you know forgetting about you know the DSL market that we're talking about, just you know the the general stock market, everybody would have been selling it, and it would have in effect created a market crash, if you will. So they were very sensitive to that, which I thought was you know fairly astute. Um, the other aspect, you know, let's assume that they don't raise rates per se, as Brian mentioned. The other part of it that I do, I am concerned about, um, is that one of the things that had come out in the last provision was that you know when when someone sells a business, there's this thing called the net investment income tax, which is ostensibly a four percent surcharge. Uh, so if you sell stock and yet a long-term gain, it will be taxed at twenty-four percent round numbers federally. Getting about you know state like Brian, who fortunately doesn't have a state income tax, but one of the things that they were talking about even until the very end was that the sale of a business which is not subject to this net would be um, so that would be an interesting aspect as well. So those are just a couple of things that you know kind of are present for me. You know, I and, think Perrin, from my standpoint, you know, obviously it's messy in Europe. It really is, but I don't see that impacting the dental industry. In fact, I, I see it driving more dollars into dentistry because I talk to a lot of funds and I talk to a lot of investors and they seem to say, you know, dentistry is, is, has been safe. I mean, it's been, again, recession proof, uh, pandemic proof. You know, if, if these forces in Europe make that a messy situation, they may take some of the money that was dedicated to investing in industries that would be vulnerable to those things and, you know, put it back into healthcare. Uh, I also think there's so much money on the sidelines right now that even if the interest rates were to go up, there's enough cash available to do cash deals. And, you know, the final thing I would say is with respect to things like Steve's talking about, you know, the 4% surcharge, or let's say they got the capital gains from 20 to 25%. Most of the commentators I've talked to and the investors say, look, the prices will just go up. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you can't account for 43.6%. That was devastating. You know, if something like that happened, that would be devastating to the markets. But if they raise the tax rate from 20 to 25%, and there's a lot of competition and demand, the prices might go up 5% to account for it. And I just don't see that being material or in any way sort of, you know, slowing these markets down. Yeah. Like Brian said, you know, the interesting, there's, there's an unlimited supply of dollars chasing a finite number of deals. So to the, you know, to Brian's point, you know, the valuations keep going because, you know, this has been a great industry for people to invest in. So, I mean, that will kind of trump, you know, these other issues. So I totally agree with Brian. Yeah, 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 you know, and you have a couple things, Perrin. One other point on this, if I may. You have a couple things going on in the deals right now. You have fundamentals. You know, what's the what's the business? What what should the business be worth? You know, first of all. 
And then you have a lot of intangibles that really can significantly drive up the multiple or the price. You know, what is the culture of the business? Uh, you know, if, if this is just an incredible culture, we're going to pay more for this. And then you get the good old fashioned. And I've seen this. It does not happen on an every deal, but it's a, it's a, it's really a product of who is available to invest when this deal goes to market. But if the timing is right, the particular deal goes to market when a lot of active live buyers are available, meaning they're not tied up in another investment. They didn't win a bid the month before. They're not preoccupied. If you go, and you can't really predict this, but if you go during a time when three or four active buyers are ready to go and they want to buy something, you may say, okay, this thing should go for between 10 and 11 times EBITDA, and then it hits 11, and then these four buyers are just bidding against themselves, and you end up at 15 just because these four buyers didn't want to let it go and wanted to compete with each other. So there's a lot of really unique circumstances like that with, with it literally unlimited dollars, as Steve said, chasing a finite amount of deals that you can get some really exceptional outcomes on the sell side. Yeah, those are excellent points. And, you know, we, uh, being a sell side advisor, uh, as we are at Polaris, I mean, we're, we try to stay attuned to all of those types of trends. And one of the things that we saw, this is maybe more side commentary from our perspective, but one of the things we saw last year was um, a lot of people, I'll just say fanning the flames, you know, and kind of driving some of that herd mentality uh, of people wanting to exit their businesses. Like if they didn't get a transaction done by the end of 2021, you know, the, the bottom was going to fall out of, uh, fall out, uh, out of valuation principles. And it, that's just not the case. I mean, you know, you're short of something calamitous happening in the macro economy, the trends in the industry are incredibly strong. We're not talking about a, uh, an industry that tips in terms of consolidation by 30% in one year or something stupid like that. It's still going to be a wave that's coming but it's not going to be exponential consolidation. It's it's going to be on a more linear trajectory. And that gives us a lot of confidence that not just multiples, but solid businesses that, to your point, Brian, are well put together with good cultures and operating principles and everything like that. You build a good business, it's going to fetch a high multiple, you know, and it's going to be that way for, for a good little while to come. So I, I think everybody's rushed to get into the market to get a deal done last year might have been slightly premature. So it's it's good to well, kind of remember, Perrin, something calamitous did happen, COVID-19. <laughs> well, it really true. Didn't stop anything. I, I know it did. I mean, to be fair, for three or four or five months, the MA market stalled out a little bit other than specialty. But at the end of that, by early to mid-summer 2020, the thing you know just started accelerating. And 2020 was the busiest, I think 2020 may have been the busiest fourth quarter we ever saw. Now, 2021 was the biggest overall volume we've ever seen, but I believe the fourth quarter of 2020 was the busiest fourth quarter just because of all the pent-up demand and, you know, everything sort of had to get done there. But, you know, it would take something like, remember when the markets froze up in 2006, 2007? I know Steve remembers this during the subprime mortgage crisis. I mean, yeah, if something happens like that, where banks are just not lending money. But I will say this, 
dentistry did very well during that time. You know, I, maybe the M&A part might slow down for a little bit, but dentistry easily survived the subprime mortgage crisis. There were many people losing their houses, losing their jobs, having horrible things happening to them, and they still went to the dentist. So dentistry has survived even big calamitous actions. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, piggybacking on Brian's point, you know, people, you know, the people behind these deals in terms of, um, you know, making the investment are, you know, very smart and very resourceful. So, right. As you know, soon as COVID, that four or five month period ended, people started getting creative with, you know, implementing, you know, uh, earn out language. So, look, we recognize that you had this six, you know, you know meaning the investor having recognizing that the selling potential selling party, you know, had a six month period of time where they had virtually no activity or very little activity. Say, okay, look, we're going to allow you a chance, you know, two year, you know, window going forward to kind of help you earn your money back. You know, as long as you can, you know, you know, as long as the industry, which we fully believe will bounce back, you'll be made whole. So, you know, people are resourceful and creative. And, you know, when, when people do that and they're sitting around the table, deals get done. Yeah. Good. Good points. And I mean, I, I was thinking also, this is a probably an appropriate time to kind of shift our focus from maybe macro and, and historical or big picture aspects into to looking at a more tactical level and, and um, with some more maybe nuance. So let's, let's talk. I mean, Steve, you mentioned earnouts being a, a, a component of that, um, realizing the cash flows out of those businesses as they returned. And, and we did see a good bit about that. Let's talk a little bit more in terms of deal structure and deal aspects. I mean, things like reps and warrants, non-competes, the earnouts that you referenced, uh, obviously people are still very interested in rolling equity, second bites of the apple and stuff like that. Do you, do y'all want to take a, an opportunity to kind of maybe wade through some of what you're seeing in terms of uh, aspects around deal structure? Yeah, I mean, earnouts are back. You know, for a while, earnouts went away during the explosive environment of 018, 019. But when COVID hit, and now, understandably, despite a lot of competition, you know, there are situations where you can't readily agree on evaluation because of recovery from COVID or even returning to post-COVID, you know, pre-COVID numbers or other situations. It's becoming less of an issue as we get more and more distance from the pandemic, but still there's variants and outbreaks like Delta and Omicron. So, you know, Earnouts are back to a certain extent, and, and it's where the buyer and seller can't completely agree on valuation or they want to, you know, shift some of the risk where, you know, if, if certain benchmarks are hit post-closing, you'll be eligible for earnouts. So, you know, earnouts are back. The issue with the rep and warranties really depends on if there's rep and warranty insurance. If there's rep and warranty insurance involved, and on the smaller deals, there's not going to be. On the mid-size to bigger deals, there is going to be. If there's rep and warranty insurance, then you know it doesn't matter if you go for more stringent reps and warranties because a lot of that stuff's going to be covered by insurance. If there's no rep and warranty insurance and there's a lot of competition, then there's an opportunity to negotiate down some of the reps and warranties and negotiate down some of the holdbacks and other things that you might see. But, you know, rule of thumb, 
if you've got a serious regulatory issue going on, there's going to be some type of holdback or rep and warranty. If there's a specific issue like a labor and employment or a regulatory issue or a misdesignation of employees as independent contractors when they should have been W-2 or some systemic thing, you know, you're not following the call warning of telling people the calls recorded and you made 50,000 calls and there's some liability there. You have a Medicaid fraud or some other insurance audit, you know, going on, you know, you're probably going to get some specific reps and warranties and special indemnities, you know, around things. I think the general rep and warranties are very similar to the way they've been for the last five years. There are some notable exceptions. You will see COVID specific reps and warranties. If you if you have taken out loans that are supposed to be forgiven, you're going to have to make reps that, you know, you, you met the criteria, you know, and if your loans are not forgiven, you know, there may be you know, clawbacks there. And then they'll just be special indemnities, parent, for specific discrete situations that come up that are unique to your business, but have created some type of risk. Could be labor employment, could be general regulatory, could be some lawsuit going on, could be a dispute with partners, could be any number of things. But if it doesn't turn out your way, there might be a special indemnity. Yeah, you know, cybersecurity could be, you know, you, you, you're vulnerable to hacking or there's some other issue. You know, any number of issues can come come up where there might be a special indemnity, you know, at play, you know, right now. Yeah. Steve, um, from your point of view on, on deal structure and aspect, aspects around it, I mean, this has got to be a bit of a moving target because with, you know, potential tax law changes, yes, no, if this, then that, I mean, you've got for your clients, I'm sure you're trying to forecast a number of things relative to deal structure and financial impact, tax-related and otherwise. I mean, do you want to want to maybe give a little bit of commentary around, um, you know, the aspects, differences between cash and and um, uh, equity, everything from depreciation recapture to to potential uh, tax impacts of deal structure and everything like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that you, um, you know, you want to do, you know, for, you know, the, the old expression, it's not, you know, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Right. Yeah. So the key is really to, you know, from our perspective is to, you know, help negotiate as strong a deal as possible to get as much of it as capital gain as possible, not ordinary income, understanding how to structure the transaction um, so if there's rollover equity and it's uh, and you know the and the owner of the practice that has the assets um, you know in contained within it you know depending upon its entity structure that we do it in a way that doesn't accelerate gain um, and so that's why you know somebody um, that is looking to sell would want to align with a you know with either Brian's firm or our firm or together you know because they obviously we we're different you know their lawyers or accountants. But in terms of working conjunction into in conjunction with one another to kind of minimize the tax hit, understand what it is, prepare them, you know, to, you know, again, our our attitude is, you know, with our client is making you know ahead of time. So if you're going to be, you know, driving around and the, you know you have a sharp turn, you want to know before you get to the sharp turn that it's coming, so you can prepare yourself, right? So in terms of just structuring the deal to to maximize capital gain, avoid depreciation recapture, ordinary income on receivables or um, you know, supplies or things like that. And then also making sure that the ultimate owner of the earnout is not going to cause a, an acceleration of a gain that someone didn't, in, you know, intend on. 
Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot a lot of moving parts and yeah, pieces sure. um, related to, to deal structure. I mean, I think our audience is probably picking up now uh, the the different aspects of this and how complicated it can be. You know, one of the uh, things that we try to impress upon clients um, when we're leading them through the process, you know, uh, of uh, going to market and then evaluating offers is spending arguably a bit more time than maybe other sell-side advisors might actually negotiating the LOI to the best of our ability up front to get as much of it satisfied on the front end and not leaving as much to chance. Brian, from a, from a letter of intent standpoint, um, you know, do you want to, do you want to maybe talk through like the issues in an LOI that are of greater importance, just at a high level at least, um, or are things to consider around LOI? Yeah, I mean, and it comes down to a philosophical decision. And I think you were uh, pointing out, you know, obviously, Perrin, that your your firm Polaris wants to get some details ironed out first. And there's obviously pros and cons, right? The pros are if you get the details ironed out first, the likelihood of a misunderstanding on a on the back end that can delay or crater the deal is greatly diminished. The con, of course, is everybody's excited. They want to start diligence. They want to start Q of E. They want to sign the LOI. And you know, the type of effort you're talking about could delay that process several weeks. And that you know, sometimes, you know, is not uh, palatable or agreeable to everybody. Um, in contrast, you know, so, so you got to decide, you know, how you want to do that. Obviously, if you have a um, less detailed LOI, the pros are you, you could start immediately. Everybody signs up, you get all that excitement. Nobody loses any uh, momentum. Of course, the con is you're going to have to negotiate things on the back end. And some of those things, and this goes to your question, can be significant. Like I've seen LOIs that don't address the non-compete. And all of a sudden, because, you know, of course, if you're going to roll over for all the dentists out there listening, you're going to be asked to sign a three to five year employment agreement, usually five years. It's going to have non-competes in it and other restrictions on you. If you know what they are in advance, then there'll be no misunderstanding on the back end. If the LOI is silent, all of a sudden, then, you know, you're going to have to negotiate your non-compete. And sometimes the buyer's idea of what a legitimate non-compete is or a market non-compete is and your idea could be very, very different. You know, we've seen them there that says you can't compete within five miles of any facility that the buyer, you know, has as an affiliate. And that could be hundreds of facilities all over the country, including the one, you know, states where you've never got done business and, you know, we're not intending to do business. And now you've got this massive non-compete obligation. You know, there are others, you know, tax language. You know, you would hope that an LOI at a minimum would say buyer will endeavor to to structure this in the most tax advantageous way possible for the seller or some language, you know, along those lines. Um, if it doesn't, then you don't know what the tax implications are going to be. And then if you just say, hey, Steve, we signed this LOI. Can you help us? You may be tied into some things that aren't going to be helpful or you may end up with a big fight on the back end over the tax treatment, things like like step up and basis and other things could create big issues on the back end. So, you know, in terms of things that, you know, 
I, I would love it if they were spelled out in the LOI, but they're sometimes not, or what the structure and the tax treatment's going to be, what the non-compete, you know, is going to be. Those are, you know, two. Sometimes there's termination as well, like the ability to terminate the seller as an employee of the business post-closing, sometimes, you know, they just leave that open-ended and then you've got to have a big debate on the back end as to when they can do it and when they can't do it versus is there an ability to terminate the seller without cause or will it just be for cause? And for cause is normally really bad things. Loss of dental license, a crime, documented sexual harassment, you know, things where if it happens, you know, you can understand why somebody's being terminated. But Sometimes I've seen it where, you know, it's open ended and then you get an employment agreement that they can terminate you for any reason. So these are at least some things that come to mind, Perrin, that it would be wonderful if they were spelled out in the LOI ahead of time. Often they're not. And often it leads to uh, big negotiations and delays. And every once in a while, even a crater deal over these terms on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, uh, uh, LOI considerations from your your end. I mean, Brian hit on a few of them there, but any comments you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a couple of things that um, you know, you know, come to mind. You know, you know, I, I, you know, my nature, you know, my my whole personality in our firms is about transparency. You know, avoiding surprises. But a couple of things that we've seen kind of you know affect the deal is, hey, what's the you know what's the closing date? You know, how long a period of time do you have to do you know conduct diligence? Um, you know, how long, you know, and then, of course, that kind of prevents you from, you know, marketing your practice to other people. So they you know, and then allowing them to kind of keep pushing out, you know, the trailing 12. Right. We always talk about the trailing 12 month period. And um, we're dealing with a deal right now. Actually, um, you know, Brian and uh, I are, are both on the representing the seller and um, and, you know, they're looking to sell to a midsize DSO and they keep pushing out to, you know, TTM, you know, all right, we want another month's worth of operations, another month just to see what's going on, I guess, so they can kind of continue to kick the tires. But that could also mean that something happens in Ukraine, another, you know, outbreak, or they could just decide, you know what, you know, or they're having something internal, having nothing to do with our respective client that could say, oh, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, we're out. So, you know, I think having, you know, specificity within the agreement, to Brian's point, 100%, always better. But, you know, the, the, the counterbalance is, um, you know, losing the momentum. And I guess if, you know, again, we don't make the decision, you know, none of us, the three of us don't, we can only advise our clients. And, you know, it's always, you know, I'd rather, if I can, you know, from my client's perspective is avoid surprises. You know, two other observations, Pern, real quick on this is CapEx expenditures. You know, um, let's say you were in the middle of painting all your offices or putting new carpet into your offices, or you're in the middle of replacing x-ray machines or something else. And now a great deal just came along and you want to do this deal. Well, is that going to cut into your EBITDA or are they going to give you credit for that? Also expansions. What if you're in the middle of buying a practice and then the timing of a deal comes along? Are they going to credit you for the EBITDA you're about to bring in, or are you basically buying a practice that they're going to get for free? So these are things that you know have to be spelled out. And I'll just say this: obviously, this is not an infomercial for you know uh, Steve's firm or for Parent's firm, but this is the value that those type of advisors can bring to your deal. You know, there is no uniform formula 
for calculating EBITDA and multiples. And, you know, people like Perrin's firm, Polaris, and Steve's accounting firm can get involved and say, you know, we don't like the formula that they use to calculate EBITDA. We think your EBITDA should be higher. Or we think, you know, this practice that you're about to buy, you should get credit for things in the pipeline. And we should put that in. Or we think this CapEx expenditure, somebody should split the difference or that shouldn't cut into your EBITDA. So for the people listening, just from my standpoint, as the lawyer, these are some things you may not even know the right question to ask, but folks at Polaris and folks at Steve's firm are working in tandem, you know, on these deals can sort of help you frame these issues. And it could end up, you know, parent, it could end up being millions of dollars in additional value if you thought to ask the right question and accounted for it. Yeah, ec- excellent point. And I think um, the, the thought process at least from our lens, on on spending a little more time negotiating the LOI up front, is that everybody is really excited to to rush to the altar. But when those issues are uncovered or too many are left for late in um, uh, in the closing process, emotions run high. People have seen the dollar numbers involved. Um, They get deal fatigue quickly. Um, that's not the time when you do your clearest thinking, you know, and, and from our client involvement perspective, I think we're trying to, to get as much of the heavy lifting done early on to make the closing process smoother and less emotional with less variance, um, on the back end. And if we can do that, I think the client has a, has a better experience. I mean, the same train of thought really holds true around quality of earnings and for businesses uh that are you know uh, say 500 to uh 500,000 to a million or more in in EBITDA the likelihood is that the buyer is going to want to do a quality of earnings report on those businesses we have started to do actual sell side quality of earnings reports for our larger volume clients and the reason for that is you know, if the firm, if we run the numbers one way and the firm doing the uh, Q of E uh, brings back something materially different, we'd rather be able to, to sort that out with the client in the calm uh, of, of time before we go to market versus finding out about that late in the, the deal and or late in the, the process and having it actually crater the deal. Uh, last year, the ones where we did run a, a Q of E, a sell side Q of E, excuse me, the, the findings um, from the accounting firm came back to be within about 5% of the EBITDA calculation that we had racked originally, which kind of validated our position. But from that, that's more of a, a running commentary on Polaris than a question. But um, long-winded way to get to a question uh, for both of y'all is just some general commentary from your lens around quality of earnings, both from a sell side and a buy side perspective here. Yeah, well, so- I mean, there's- there's our, I don't know whose turn it is. Who is it? Okay. Turn? Sorry, oh, I, I should call it. Somebody talk, please. Brian, it's always your turn. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'll be brief because it might be Steve's turn. I don't want to. Come up. But, but, okay. You know, there's three things you can do to add value. You can do a sell side Q of E because it will definitely, and I know Perrin, you use, you use reputable firms and other things. I know Steve does a wonderful job on Q of E, but if you use a reputable firm, it'll catch any major things, okay? There might be 5% where you nitpick over tiny things, but basically you're gonna catch a, a, any major material issue that the buyer would catch. So that's one thing on a big, you know, on a solo deal worth a million dollars, you're probably not gonna do it. But on any type of deal, of 
any substance, you want to do a sell-side Q of E. You also, depending on the size of the deal, if it's a group practice, you might want to do a sell-side regulatory check, and you might want to do a sell-side chart audit and sort of HIPAA check, because these are things that the um, buyers are going to look at, and you'd like to know them in advance, because a lot of times you can control the narrative. If you do a regulatory check or a chart audit, and you find some issue, you can fix it. And then by the time you go to market, say, oh, yeah, you saw that? Well, that was all been corrected. And it sort of takes the wind out of everybody's sales versus making some major issue that could impact value and delay the transaction. So I'll be brief because I want to hear Steve's perspective. But those are my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, Brian, you were, you were kind of reading my mind in terms of, you know, and we've done it for you, you know, obviously, Parent, as you know, and successfully in having, you know, closed transactions in terms of doing the quality Q of E, you know, the Q of E for you. And, you know, number one, like Brian said, control the narrative. Um, it, number two is just, you know, we, are, we had, uh, you know, a major uh, DSO did an acquisition of one of our clients uh, where they actually were able to leverage our work, accelerate the diligence process you know, go to closing a lot quicker, having the client avoid surprises, um, controlling the narrative, managing expectations. And I think the other thing that it enables you to do um, is, uh, you know, like, so if there are some issues, you know, financial issues or operational issues that we've, uh, you know, or you, you know, meaning the client is, you know, uh, you know, discovered or uncovered, it gives you time to maybe take corrective action so that maybe you don't go to market, you know, for the next three months so that you can show a proof of concept and that, you know, we, you know, we were, you know, we were purchasing supplies, you know, in an excessive amount or not utilizing them or, you know, not controlling our staffing or whatever the case may be. And now look at, you know, look at the last three months, have we been able to do that and improve your overall valuation? So from my perspective, you know, again, it, it might sound, sound self-serving because this is what we do, but I think it's the best bang for your buck in order to do this kind of thing because you're you're really going to improve the valuation and the timing. The other part of that, by the way, is, is you know, part and parcel to a QV, and this would definitely apply um, to the smaller clients where, you know, they're not, D, a, a, you know, a DSO that's looking to, you know, sw you know do an upward, you know, transaction. Uh, it would be to convert your financial reporting to accrual basis. That takes time, but that will, you know, ultimately the buyer is going to want to see that because what you deposit and what you pay isn't necessarily a reflection of what your true operational activity is. So that would be something else that I would certainly uh, recommend that, you know, you know, the clients out there, your you know, the listeners out there kind of look at in terms of converting their data, at least for the most recent year, um, to accrual basis accounting to give the best barometer of what's really going on. Yeah, really, uh, really good insight there, Steve. I mean, I, uh, I didn't sort of have that cash to accrual in my train of thought, but that's that's 100% correct and and really good, uh, really good insight there. So uh, let's maybe um, move back now from the the micro or the tactical level to sort of the macro and a, and a larger uh, picture and, and perspective. And that's around the, the outlook for dentistry, uh, the attractiveness of it in terms of the, the space, Brian, you touched on, you know, aspects of healthcare and dentistry specifically in a, in a comment earlier. Um, but also just for both of you, maybe some general prognostications for the future, or if you, if you're so inclined, maybe some bold predictions for our audience, uh, Steve, I'll, I'll let you take the lead on this one. Any, uh, 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 comments around outlook for dentistry and prognostications for the future? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that I, I have a love by, you know, attending uh, Brian's conferences, the DICOMA, you know, DSO conference, was he has this graphic um, that usually is shown like, you know, Darwinism, the evolvement of dentistry, you know, if I, you know, I may be misquoting it, Brian, version 1.0, 1.1, 5.1. Um, you know, I think dentistry is, I think it's safe to say that uh, dentistry has embraced the DSO model. I think it is, it is here to stay um, and not even here to stay. It's going to be what ultimately will be the, you know, the forum over the next five to 10 years of how, you know, dental practices will be performing. I mean, it's, it's gone to the point where NYU uh, Dental School is now uh, has a course about having their dentists work in a DSO environment. So I think, you know, the outlook is, you know, tremendous. I don't think it's going to change. And, you know, I don't see it changing in the foreseeable future. Um, in terms of a bold prediction, you know, when you, you know, when you mention, you know, companies, you know, practices like Aspen buying Clear Choice, I guess the question is, will somebody be going public? <laughs> I guess that would be, I mean, the, I guess the next step, right, in terms of, you know, the unlimited appetite for capital, will that be, you know, what ultimately becomes? I certainly would be curious to hear what Brian's opinion is on that. Yeah, you know, I, I think what you're going to see here is the great evolution and consolidation is going to continue. You know, we're sitting somewhere at 37, 38% consolidation. It's going to go to 80%, you know, in the next 10 years or something like that, you know, in, in that ballpark. Um, you're going to continue to see this trend of big acquisitions where it makes sense. Uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to keep seeing that. You know, the interesting thing about it, though, is it's not just an exponential linear consolidation in as much as, remember, 60% of the people, Perrin, don't go to the dentist. So this is not a, and there's a lot of room for expansion. So in any given year, this is not a case where there's 100 dental practices and 30 of them get consolidated. So now it's 30%. It's not. There might be 100 dental practices at the beginning of the year, but then at the end of the year, there's 160 dental practices because 60 people don't, 60% don't go to the dentist. So now you've got 30, you know, practices consolidated, but it's 30 of 160, not 30 of 100. And that keeps coming. So it's a very complicated algorithm as to, you know, getting the consolidation to where it's, you know, 75 or 80%. You know, the other point for some of the big players in the industry, as Steve just pointed out, the only place to go is up. So that, meaning that's going to be like a SPAC or going public. There's not really, you know, if you've got uh, 10 offices and you sell to private equity, that's easy. You got to get it to 25, 30, 40 and sell. If you've got 40, that's pretty easy. You got to get to 80, 100, 120 and sell in three to five years. Even at 125, you can say, fine, we got to get to 250 or 300. That's all doable in three to five years. Once you get to a thousand offices, you can't get to 2000 in three to five years. So really the only way to return value is you got to do a SPAC or you got to go public. And I think you are going to see some of the bigger players, just a prediction. I don't have any inside information, but you're going to see some of the bigger players make a bold move and do a SPAC or do a, you know, go public sometime in the next few years. Steve Mizrak of Dorfman, Mizrak and Thaler, Brian Kaleo of the Dyke and the Law Group. I cannot thank you two guys enough uh, for being on the show today and for just being great industry partners um, uh, in this journey of, of group practices and DSOs. Y'all are two industry titans, like I, I said in the opening 
our audience is better for you being on the show with me today versus listening to me blabble on about nothing once again. But uh, your insights, your um, your your education level around all of this is is unbelievable and just. I really can't thank you both enough for being great partners of us here at Polaris uh, and and really for, for spending your time uh, with our audience today. Thank you both so very, very much. Th thank you, Perrin, for being here. If I can plug our conference, July 13th yeah. to the 15th, 2022 in Denver, that's a Dykema conference this year. I know Perrin will be there. Steve will be there. Um, anybody that wants to register, dykemadso.com. Thank you, Perrin. Really enjoyed being here. Yeah, thank you, Perrin. I, I loved it. It's great. And always good to talk to Brian and yourself. So thanks again for uh, inviting me. Yeah, you really bet. Guys, this won't be the last time we do this. Uh, I'm, I'm confident there'll be a, another one upcoming. And, and like I say, I'm, I'm confident that all of our audience uh, got multiple takeaways out of today's discussion. I certainly had a lot of fun hosting the show. And, and for those in the audience, I hope you did get a lot out of today's episode. If you did, Feel free to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you got questions, feel free to submit them to, directly to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. We'll also link to uh, Brian and Steve's contact information in the show notes. If you want to reach out to either of them directly, please do so. Um, and of course, you can find out more about us on our website at www.PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.